0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Maggie Smith, author of the memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful.
1: You know, there are all these formal devices that we can use as writers to make ourselves more
0: comfortable, I think, handling hot material. We'll be back with Maggie Smith after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. When you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you. But it is not without expense to me, in hard costs, and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love, but all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode, There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort, takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So, why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? I would say, with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers any amount is welcome but for six dollars a month you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis please stay tuned at the end of the show I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear and please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe and thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today right now in this moment and on to the show My interview today is with memoirist, poet, and nonfiction writer Maggie Smith. She is the author of nine books, including national bestsellers Golden Rod and Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change, as well as Good Bones, named one of the best five poetry books of 2017 by the Washington Post and winner of the 2018 Independent Publisher Book Awards Gold Medal in Poetry. Smith is the recipient of a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and has won two Academy of American Poets prizes. In 2016, her poem Good Bones went viral internationally and was covered by The Washington Post, The Guardian, Post Italia, and other publications. It has been translated into nearly a dozen languages, and Public Radio International called it the official poem of 2016. Her new memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, is told in vignettes that explore the disintegration of her marriage and her renewed commitment to herself. She begins the book with her personal heartbreak and the betrayal she experienced and contemplates the wider notions of womanhood, independence, motherhood, forgiveness, and narrative. You Could Make This Place Beautiful interweaves personal narrative with existential questions, memories, and arguments for hope and regeneration. We began the discussion with me asking Maggie Smith this question. You have a beautiful epigraph from Emily Dickinson, and I've never read it before. And it says, I am out with lanterns looking for myself. And I felt as I was reading this in some way, this was a guiding principle for your book. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, I don't know if you remember when you first read this line, but why you chose it.
1: Yeah, I don't actually remember the first time I encountered the Dickinson line, but um, and it didn't actually predate the writing of the memoir. So I was working on the book before I found the epigraph. And sometimes that happens. You stumble across something and it's like, oh, that doesn't need to be a quote in the book. That needs to be the sort of umbrella quote for the whole thing. That needs to be the the welcome that quote right at the very beginning And it was the the sort of guiding principle I wanted the reader to keep in mind going into the book. I think because to me, poetry always does this thing. Even for me as a poet, when I read someone else's line, it encapsulates or articulates something that I don't quite have language for. I mean, that's why I go to poems for that click, that little spark of like, oh, yes, that's exactly what it is. I hadn't thought to phrase it that way. And so I knew kind of traveling into this memoir and telling these stories and trying to sort of find myself in it was going to be kind of like traveling into the dark, traveling back into a a dimmer lit space. And so I loved this idea of being out with lanterns, like carrying light with yourself while you're looking for who who it is you are um and i don't know about you but i i find that uh myself and a lot of people i know uh hit a certain age and are like well, how did i get here like what what choices what decisions what paths taken or not taken um to bring frost into it um what sort of led me to be where i am in my life who i am in my life how do I sort of reckon with that? And so this this writing experience and then that epigraph kind of, I think encapsulate the curiosity that I went into this project with,
0: yeah, I think that's really interesting that you that it wasn't there for you from the beginning, which kind of leads me to ask you a little bit about the structure of the book and, it makes, I understand how you could weave something like that in later because it feels so overarching, but the structure of your book are almost like these little vignettes or you have pages Mm -hmm. where you just are trying to answer a question or you have areas where you include poetry or you have kind of like deeper thoughts in italics. So just curious about the structure and maybe for you, it does relate really closely to poetry. I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: it does. I mean, I think I enter every writing project as a poet. Like, I don't know how to write anything except for as a poet. That's my home genre. That's that's sort of my territory. So whenever I write anything, whether it's an essay or a poem or a story or probably an email, <laughs> I'm writing it as a poet. And so when I approach a writing project, the thing I'm thinking of, and I do this with poems too, is what form is going to best embody or enact the content? Like, here's the content. Here's here's the, the sort of experience or thought that I'm bringing to this piece. Now, what form is going to best kind of bring the reader into that experience and so for this memoir, I knew that vignettes would be probably the right way to do it. A, because I'm a poet and I'm comfortable writing small. I'm a whittler. So when I start writing something, my Im- like my impulse is always to make it smaller. I'm always looking for places to trim away connective tissue, cut fat, like boil it down, only sort of get to the most essential pieces. So as I revise a piece of writing, it almost always shrinks. It usually doesn't grow in size um, and scope. And so as a poet, I knew probably it would make the most sense for me to do it as myself, which would be to write small over and over again, rather than try to think about it as big from the outset. And then the other thing is that, you know, memory is associative. We don't remember in a straight line, like a history textbook timeline, where this happened and then this happened and this, then this happened. So when you remember something, it sort of pings or it's more of a constellation shape or a web, right? And it reminds you of this other thing over here, which then might ping and remind you of this other thing over here. And so the vignettes and the sort of threading to me felt like the most psychologically true form for what. It feels like to both remember different parts of your life and also kind of ruminate, you know, because because ruminating and thinking about things and processing things and grieving, those things don't happen in a straight line either. They happen in like spirals or circles or waves. Um, And so trying to find the shape that the reader would not just hear the story, but would feel the experience, that was kind of how I came to the, the structure.
0: You know, for people who haven't read it, they might envision from what you just said that it's all these random vignettes, but it is not random at all. It's very, no. um you have kind of also like repeating, like almost like choruses throughout the book. I know you love music. So you have... An area where you come back to this idea of plot many times and what is plot and you have an idea where you come back to your life as a play and you call yourself the finder and you have um, elements where you come back to this question um, that I want to talk to you more about is like, what is the unanswerable question about this memoir? Mm -hmm. So you you do have these snippets, but there's also like a larger shape to it.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm glad that you that you got that. It it really did entail for me braiding a lot of different strands. And putting it together was not that different for me from putting together a poetry man manuscript, which is I tend to print everything out, lay all the pages out, like on my living room floor, and then I color coded the different strands literally with markers so if the unanswerable questions were a strand say they were pink and then maybe the italicized sort of playing with metaphor might have been blue and then the forward narrative might have been green and the quotes from other writers might have been yellow and so I could kind of leaf them together maintain the structure of the narrative going forward because I wanted the reader to have an anchor and not just be bouncing around you're right and then I wanted to make sure that each strand stayed fairly consistent and didn't drop out for too many pages. So, if I noticed that pink was gone for 30 pages in a draft, I would go back through and be like, nope, I've got to work that strand in because I do want it to feel really tightly woven. So, that was actually great. It was a huge challenge of kind of Tetrising the book together, um, but it was also great, sort of mathematical fun for a poet. <laughs>
0: What was it like when you very first started it? I mean, the impetus for this book is, I guess, the downfall of your marriage, that you discovered that your husband was having an affair, which kind of made you look at something bigger and like, how has our relationship truly been? And that's so emotional. And your book is so crafted. So I'm curious in the very beginning days, how not that you had to but how did you start writing and control all these feelings to get it to where it is now
1: yeah that's a good question i mean i i didn't i didn't begin writing the book um in the middle of all of that sort of discovery and processing so there was um not a ton of distance but there was some distance between um you know living the events themselves and then writing about them um Later in the book, a lot of that was sort of being written closer to when it happened, but the initial scenes um, I needed I needed a year or two to kind of wrap my head around those. And you know, some of those, some of the strands that you're talking about, like the play and like the discussion of plot, and some of the the like actually talk, breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader, some of those sort of craft moves for me enabled me to write the more difficult parts because they allowed me to create a little bit of distance between me the person and what was happening in the book
0: so you start the book with this image of a pine cone it's it's kind of i mean it's both an image and a real object it's an artifact mm. that is very symbolic cuz your husband brings it home for your son on a trip that he it turns out that he was with this other woman and the pine cone is where the reader kind of gets anchored and starts the book with learning about this pine cone and that, that it's not like this pure thing from nature. It's, it's tainted. So curious how you landed on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, that's sort of where the story begins. Um, And I, and I talk about it in the, in the very beginning of the book, I'm sort of like where the story could start in many different places and for anyone who's who's tried to sort of write memoir or even write a personal essay about a time, there are lots of openings or potential openings, right? A lot of different places where a story could begin. Um, and to me, maybe in part because I'm a poet and I like to work with image and metaphor and symbol, that um, beginning with that um, felt like the right place to me. But I mean, I'm fairly open in the book that it could have begun in a lot of different places. And and ultimately, you just have to make a choice the same way with how a book ends, right? Like how a book ends is, is up for grabs. And it could have ended a lot of different ways because it's a book and not a life, right? So the book ends and the life continues. That's the tricky thing about memoir. When a novel ends, the story kind of ends. And you might imagine what those characters might continue doing if the author kept writing about them, but they don't exist. In a memoir, the book ends and we all put it down, but the living continues. Those people aren't characters. And so trying to decide where to sort of like trim the story from beginning to end, um was one of what is one of the challenges that I think is is a challenge that faces all of us who write about ourselves.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure for many writers it's really hard to sleep at night because there's no answer. It's not like um, you know, like when you took a test in elementary school and the answers were in the back of the book.
1: Yeah, unfortunately no. Yes, I yeah, I actually worked for a while in educational publishing and so part of my job for a while was writing the the answers at the back of the book. And so uh, I, you know, knowing, I think appeals to all of us. It's why plot appeals to all of us. Like we are storytellers by nature. We want answers. We want wholeness. We want to understand things. Um, and life doesn't always offer that to us. Right. And so I think even go, kind of tying back to the epigraph, you know, the one of the ideas I think in this book is that other people will always be in part, a mystery to us. We don't actually have access to the interior of anyone else. We can only ever know ourselves and speak for ourselves. And so um, one of the things that I can do for myself, at least is to not be a mystery to myself, right? To get to know myself well enough to have enough self-awareness that I can make the best choices for me, for my kids, for my writing, in my own, you know, other relationships, even though I don't have, quote, all the answers or any control over what anybody else does.
0: Well, one of the things you do several times throughout the book is you talk about sort of your future self you you mention like in one part you're saying by the time you're reading this sentence i want to have let go and there's another place where you're saying i want to be in a place of forgiveness when this book is out in the world and that time is now and yeah. i'm curious how you feel about those things
1: you know i think i i landed um i landed in a place of acceptance which i think is um sort of texturally, and maybe even sort of temperature wise, a little bit different than what we think of as forgiveness. Um, But acceptance is where I've landed. And, And to me, that's like a good enough space where I feel like I've healed enough, not because I've gotten all of the answers or everything I needed from anybody else, but because I've gotten enough answers from myself, and sort of peace within myself, um, which I can control, right? Like that's the peace that I can control. That's what, isn't that what we always hear, right? Like you can't control anyone else's behavior, but you can control your reaction or you can't control what happens to you, but you can control your response. And so I think one of the big sort of healing pieces of the writing of this book was seeing myself in a new way and seeing some of the decisions that I made even like earlier in life in my 20s and my teens and my 30s in a new way and being able to show myself compassion and even forgive myself like that's a big piece of this it's not just being able to forgive other people for the ways that you feel they may have wronged you it's about forgiving yourself for maybe not doing things differently yourself, right? Because every relationship is co-created, like every family system, every work relationship, every friendship, every parent-child relationship, we make that together. It's not, you know, visited upon us. And so the best thing I could do for myself to get to a place of acceptance was really reckon with not other people because that's not how you heal. It's reckoning with myself,
0: One of the things throughout the book um, you are wondering what to do with is your wedding dress. And I'm Mm. curious if you still have it.
1: I do. It's still in my son's closet. Um, Yeah, I haven't I haven't done anything with it yet. I actually still have my rings Um, and I haven't decided what to do with them. I think maybe this might be the year Um, now that the memoir is coming out, like it might be time to sort of have some kind of symbolic something with with them. Um, but it hasn't hit me yet. So so yeah, there they're still artifacts in the house. I like the idea of having like a symbolic letting go. I mean, I I sort of I wrote about that. Like what what um what would happen if I went to all the places that were sort of important to me during that relationship and left a scrap of the dress until it was gone. Like just left a piece of it. And all of these places, almost like scattering ashes, right? Like where people wish to be. Um, I didn't do it. Like I thought maybe I'd take it on a road trip and just kind of rip it up and leave it in in meaningful places. And, And maybe I still will. I mean, actually, I think that might be a kind of
0: cathartic adventure to have at some point. It sounds fun. Yeah, maybe. I mean, who knows? It's definitely (laughs) it's like both an excavation and a letting go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and honestly, in, in some ways, that's exactly what this book was. That feels that feels right to me, like an excavation as a way of letting go. Like, let's just dig it all up. Let's look at it with clear eyes, turn it over in our hands, look at all the facets, know it as well as we can and then set it down.
0: If only your wedding dress could drive and you can look out the window.
1: Oh, I would love. Yeah, we'll we'll do a self-driving car and we'll just put the wedding dress in the, the little driver's seat and let it take me around. There's a metaphor for you. Who's driving this car?
0: <laughs> Early in the book, you have a chapter called A Note on Foreshadowing. And I'm wondering if you could read this um, on page 23 so we could talk just a little bit about plot, because that was something that idea of plot came back many times.
1: A note on foreshadowing. It's a mistake to think of one's life as plot, to think of the events of one's life as events in a story. It's a mistake. And yet there's foreshadowing everywhere. Foreshadowing I would have seen myself if I'd been watching a play or reading a novel, not living a
0: life. So can you talk about plot and how, you know, both craft-wise for memoir, like it is our life. It's not a plot. And you write later, like, it's not about the plot. It's just about what it means. And why was this idea of plot so interesting to you that it was something you came back to throughout the book?
1: I think probably because I was approaching this book as a poet. So plot has not been on my list of things to make right? Like I, I haven't needed that. That's not been on my radar. Um, you know, I'm not a fiction writer. I write poems. I write essays. And so going into this memoir, I realized, okay, so I'm, I'm having to tell the sort of story of my adult life. What does that look like? When I think about story, I think about that famous, you know, plot diagram of the it looks like kind of like a steep mountain, right, where we're kind of climbing up the rising action. And then we hit this sort of peak crisis. And then we have the following action and the resolution. And I was imagining, you know, being a, a Gen X or being an 80s kid and having the teacher kind of lay that transparency back Back when we used to have transparencies instead of smart boards and would lay this transparency and would kind of draw in a marker, you know, and shine the light up to the front of the class. And in that way, I just kept thinking, I don't, this as a transparency, this rising action and this plot structure, I don't know how to overlay this or map this onto my lived life. Like it doesn't, lived experience does not feel as neat as writing the plot of a story. First, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And then if we're lucky, they lived happily ever after. Um, It it just didn't feel that neat. So in the same way that I felt like the vignettes were the most psychologically true way of telling the story, I also really wanted to have a discussion with the reader about like, what am I doing here? Like, how do I tell you this story? I'm trying to tell you this story, but how do I do it? And to kind of show, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, you get to sort of peek behind the curtain and see the man working the levers. I wanted to show the reader behind the curtain of the writing process a little and say, hey, me me to you, person to person, this is something I'm struggling with. Like, I'm not sure how to tell this story, I'm not sure where I am in the plot of my life. I'm not sure if it's even helpful to think of it that way, because this is a life, not necessarily a quote unquote story. And if it had been a book, like if I could step back objectively and read this experience like a book, the reader in me would have seen certain things coming. Because I think there is foreshadowing in our lives. You know, that's what we call red flags <laughs> um, or little things that maybe we kind of shake off because we don't really want to look at them or the the sort of tiny cracks that can happen in a relationship that foreshadow the large, the larger crack when they finally all meet and become something that is like a little larger than a small hairline fracture but we're not invited to look at our lives that way unless we're writing about it. And so in some ways, writing it was a gift because it it allowed me to look back and process some of some of what now I see as foreshadowing for some of what happened later.
0: Having looked at it this way through the lens of a writer and maybe coming to discoveries about those things, and maybe some of it is also just intuition. Do you now approach your life with maybe a greater attention to those moments that could easily pass you by, but do you stop and linger and really investigate them more?
1: I hope I do. I mean, I'd like to believe that I'm a pretty attentive, attuned, and sensitive person. I mean, that's, that's why I do what I do. I'm not sure I could be a poet if I weren't you know, tuned in to like small changes and mundane moments and sort of like little sort of energy disturbances with people. I think I'm pretty attuned to them. Um, but I also think that sometimes daily life can create a kind of override scenario for a lot of that attentive behavior where if you're just sort of like in the weeds, parenting young kids, going to work, getting home in your routine, we can become a little dulled to some of those things. And um, I think I'm less dulled to it now. And in part because I'm out, I'm out. I mean, I'm in a new routine in a way, but I'm also out of a routine that I was in for many years.
0: Another element of the book that came back a lot, you had these pages that were incredibly short and they were all called a friend says every book begins with an unanswerable question and then in the body of the page you say then what is mine and throughout the book you have different questions like in this one it says how to set it down there's others mm. that might say like how to let it go or what does this mean and they're throughout the book so I'm curious about those unanswerable questions both in your life and in the book as a craft device
1: yeah I was I was doing a uh, an event I think it was for Pittsburgh Arts and Lectures when Goldenrod, my book of poems came out a couple of years ago and I was in conversation with the writer Tiana Clark and she said something during that conversation about books beginning with an unanswerable question. I remember jotting it down you know, during our Zoom chat, because I thought, oh my gosh, that's so right. Like, that is so, that feels so intuitively right to me that we are bringing, particularly to something like like a memoir, we're bringing all of these big ideas, probably unsolvable mysteries to this writing project. And, And the goal ultimately isn't necessarily to quote unquote solve or answer any of these things. It's to you know, in the words of Rilke, like live the questions now, it's to live through the questions and really sit with them. And as far as craft, I mean, the, the first draft of this book had a list of, had one chapter called, a friend says every book begins with an unanswerable question, then what is mine? And it was a list of all the questions in the book. And, um, Megan Stielstra, who I worked with really closely on this book as an editor, said, what what would happen if you spread those out? What would happen if you pulled them apart and allowed them each a little bit more breathing room? They might be more powerful individually than they are when we get them all in a rush because the reader doesn't really have time to sit and consider each question in the context of what might come right before it in the book and what might come right after it in the book. And I love that. I love that idea of making it yet another thread so that when you reach that specific question, you know, what is mine or how to remain myself or how to heal, you're both considering what you just read in the page or two before. And then it's also informing, I think what comes next? Um, And so structurally kind of deciding where I wanted those to go um, was another sort of piece piece of the puzzle. And I I do think most of them are unanswerable, not that they don't have many potential answers, but that they don't have one neat answer that will hold.
0: How much do editors influence your writing and is it different between poetry and nonfiction?
1: Yeah, I don't actually um I haven't really had a an editor or at least at my publisher do a lot of work on a poetry collection. Um I send the book and they're like, yeah, okay, that's the book. Um I do a lot of editing myself and I send work to people I trust. So I have a couple of people that I when I finish a poem, I send them the poem. Hey, what do you think? it doesn't mean that their feedback will necessarily make it into the final version of the poem, but I like not to work in an echo chamber. You know, I think it's good for us, no matter if we published zero books or seven books or 20 books to be, you know, asking other people, what do you, what do you think about this? Am I, is am I in a rut here? Do you get it? Do you have questions? Is it satisfying? You know, what do you think? Um, for nonfiction, I feel like I'm actually much more open to feedback and seeking of feedback because it's not my natural mode. Um, You know, prose for me is, you know, obviously something I've been writing my whole life. We write prose as kids, but um, this book in particular was such a new project for me that I really did want to work closely with another writer on um, structuring it and thinking my way through the book. And so that's that's what Megan did for me.
0: And sometimes in the book, you step further away from who you are and create kind of a character for yourself. And that's when at times you're writing about all of this that's happening to you as a play and you are the finder and it's a with a capital F. And the characters are almost like very symbolic, like almost like Greek gods versions of the, the thing that they stand for and the thing that they're there for. So I'm curious about landing on this device and how it helped you maybe write more difficult scenes or what role you wanted it to play on the page, but also as a thinker
1: yeah. I love I love that um you're thinking about the Greeks because i I do think the sort of big the characters and in that strand, it is kind of archetype, right? Like they're they're symbolic. They stand in for for kind of roles that we play in life that are less individualized. um the mother, the wife, the husband, the finder, the child. so it it feels in some ways less intimate. and, you know i mean I, I say in the book like it's sometimes just easier to write about yourself as third in third person writing in first person i about things that are difficult or painful or vulnerable feels different in the body than writing about it slightly distanced held at arms length in a third person slightly fictionalized way and so it it did in a way help me um access some things that i felt like almost like oven mitts you know like the material was so hot that i needed a little bit of distance or a little bit of padding a little bit of protection as a writer to give myself the permission to go to some of those places now in a poem the oven mitts might be form like well if i write it as a villanelle it's structurally formal and so it gives me a little bit of a distance or if I write about it in third person or second person or even past tense is cooler than present tense which is hot so you know there are all these formal devices that we can use as writers to make ourselves more comfortable I think handling hot material and that was one of the ways that I did it for myself in the book.
0: In a similar way to or at least maybe a cousin of what you're talking about is there's a part in the book it's early on and you had suffered a miscarriage and you write, there's a difference between what is built in the body and what is built in the imagination. And what you were referring to was like, you already were a mother of this child, even though it wasn't made physical um that what you create in your head is was just as real for you and the loss of that was just as real for you and you were just kind of talking a little bit about embodiment and stepping away from that and so i wanted to just follow up on this element of of what is lived in the body and what is lived in the mind because the same thing with your marriage right you thought you'd be together forever and that was what you had that was your vision.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What we build in our imaginations doesn't necessarily get built for real, right? Like that's a, that's a different thing. If we're lucky, it does. If we're lucky, it does. Or maybe if we, if we just are really conscious about the way that we're building it and really attuned and really, you know, present, um, but yeah, I'm I actually I'm really it's heartening for me to hear that 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 sort of metaphor came through for you uh, um, in that chapter, that what we what we sort of project into the future with our imaginations and with hope, which is an imaginative force, right? Like when we're hoping that's imaginative because we're seeing something in the future that's not there yet. Um that's different from, from reality. And we don't actually know what's there. I mean, one of the things I think a lot about is, is the future actually isn't any less defined now than it was for me 20 years ago. I just thought it was defined 20 years ago. You know, when I, when I was married, I thought I knew what the future was, but it actually was it, it, as, as, equally ambiguous and equally empty and equally up for grabs as it is right now. I just didn't have that awareness then. And so what I have now is an unclear future and an awareness that the future is unclear instead of maybe a false sense of of what I thought I was building in the future.
0: Well, it's also in a way that's really what you lost because you can't ever uh, grab the present. Like in a way you didn't lose the present because it's impossible to lose the present. The present is just yeah. happening. And so when you lost your marriage, you lost the whole imagination of what your life would be. I think we have a lot of lessons to learn about non-attachment and um, that we cannot control anything. And that is, I think, one of the scariest things of being human. Oh, if
1: not the scariest thing
0: of being human.
1: Yeah, yeah, we we really, we don't know. I mean, I really do think that with a, a whole lot of like naivete and optimism, particularly in our early lives, we believe that we can sort of set our life and then kind of copy paste it into infinity into the future like well this year looks like this so probably next year will look like this too and then the next year will look like this well I mean if if 2020 showed us anything it's that we have no idea what the next year might look like and it's incredibly scary to know how much uncertainty we actually are living with all the time without even being conscious of it And the flip side of that is it's incredibly exhilarating how much uncertainty we live
0: with. (laughs) One of the things you write in the very end, um, it's a quote from Rilke that I have never seen before. And it slayed me like it brings tears Mm. to my eyes just thinking about it. I know. I know the quote. (laughs) Oh, my God. It says, let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror just keep going. No feeling is final. And so that idea that we were talking about at the very beginning about where to start and end, it's like you want to end a memoir, but your life is still going and your feelings are not final.
1: No, they're not. And and it's, it's sort of maddening, right, um, in some ways. But also I find that quote so comforting and freeing. Um, And sort of permission giving, it's actually written on a post-it note stuck to my office window, and it's been there for years. And it just lives there in my handwriting, and I see it every day. Um, So if I ever need that reminder, it's just sitting there. Um, No feeling is final is, to me, so comforting, particularly when the feeling is sad, sad or angry or frustrated or disappointed or jealous or whatever the negative emotion is. It's so comforting, I think, when we realize that that's just a place where we're visiting for a time and we'll be moving through that, you know? And it may, we may move through it quickly if we're lucky, that negative feeling. We may have to linger there for a while and sort of sit with it and not rush through it and let it spend its time and then move through it but it's not where we live. Like no individual feeling is where we live. It's just a place we're visiting. And in my sort of darkest moments, I really needed um, Rilke there to remind me that, okay, just keep going. This is not an end point. This is not final. This is not permanent. It will pass. It will
0: pass. I think it would also be very helpful When parenting kids going through this?
1: Yeah. I mean, because no two days are the same, right? Not for us and not for them. Like we all have good days and bad days. And when I have a bad day, it's good for me to remember probably tomorrow will be better. And if it's not, probably the next day you know, time has shown, I can look back at my life and be like, actually, yeah, I probably I don't usually have two really bad days in a row. And so if you know, the past is some evidence of the, of the future, I can, I can gauge that there'll, there'll be an upswing. And the same with kids, you know, being able to bring the, that wisdom to them and just say, I know today is hard. Like, frankly, today kind of sucks. I hear you. We don't have to pretend it doesn't. I'm not going to tell you not to cry, not to be mad, not to feel your feelings. You get to feel it, all of it, beauty and terror. Rilke says so. Um, but know that it's temporary, right? I mean, the the sticking point of that is that, that sometimes joy can be temporary too. You know, we don't really get to keep a white knuckled hold on anything. All of it is fleeting. And in those cases, it reminds me... To really savor the beautiful, bright moments because those too will pass. That's how time works. We don't get to hit pause um, in that part of the story and just kind of live in the good times. We have to continue to cycle through. So that I think that can help give us and our kids like greater appreciation for living in the present moment and and enjoying that
0: beauty when we have it. I'm curious about how you vet this in the end. If your ex-husband had to read it or like legal, like for people who are writing memoirs, how do they navigate that at the end?
1: Yeah, I think everyone probably handles it differently. Some people might have, I mean, I know people who who have maybe written about their parents or written about um, a friend or a sister. and you might want to show the person the thing beforehand and just say, hey, are you cool with this? Like, are, are we still good? Um, and there may be times when it doesn't actually make any sense to do that because they probably would not be okay with it for obvious reasons. And in that case, it makes sense just to make sure that legally you're in good standing. And also, I mean, I will say personally, I knew going into this book that I was writing it with the right frame of mind and with the right, um, like I was coming to this book with a sense of curiosity, a sense of personal accountability. And really the kind of guiding principle for this book is love and not anger or any other sort of negative emotion. And I knew that if I kept sort of like my experience centered my truth, only speaking for myself um, and approaching it with a lot of sort of openness and compassion and curiosity that I wouldn't get myself in the weeds.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yes. So uh, picking something is really hard. Um, but I found just a couple of paragraphs from um, this book is by Sarah Rule. Uh, she is a playwright, uh, and this this book is called 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write, and the subtitle is On Umbrellas and Sword Fights, Parades and Dogs, Fire Alarms, Children and Theater. And so these um, this is just the last two paragraphs of this very brief essay. Um, The essay itself is called On Interruptions, which um, people who are writers and parents um, have to (laughs) contend with plenty of those. There was a time when I first found out I was pregnant with twins that I saw only a state of conflict. When I looked at theater and parenthood, I saw only war, competing loyalties, and I thought my writing life was over. There were times when it felt as though my children were annihilating me. Truly, you have not lived until you have changed one baby's diaper while another baby quietly vomits on your shin. And finally, I came to the thought, all right, then, annihilate me. That other self was a fiction anyhow. And then I could breathe. I could investigate the pauses. I found that life intruding on writing was, in fact, life. And that tempting as it may be for a writer who is also a parent, one must not think of life as an intrusion. At the end of the day, writing has very little to do with writing and much to do with life. And life, by definition, is not an intrusion.
0: Can you talk about why you chose that?
1: Oh, I love this book so much. Um, Actually, there's a quote. There's a quote from this book um, about narrative in... In the memoir, but I was thinking about um how difficult it was for me after having kids to write again. The longest dry spell I ever had was the year after my daughter was born. I didn't write a poem for a year. And I talk about this in the memoir. It took me forever to finally get back to writing. And I mean, A, it was just logistically a nightmare. I was exhausted and she had colic and I had postpartum depression and none of that was a great recipe for creativity. But also, I didn't know what my writing was going to be. I I just couldn't conceive, with my daily life looking like it looked, where the poems would go. You know, would I write poems about burp cloths and diapers and babies and missed naps? Like, what what would my inspiration be what was my material now and how how could i do it my way and so it was really important to me when i got back to writing to seek out other mothers in particular who were writing and particularly writing poems and seeing the ways that they were still being so sharp and rigorous and strange in their sort of excavation of these seemingly mundane moments in life. And it gave me permission to do it myself. And so when I read that part of Sarah Rule's book, I was like, that I know. I'm constantly interrupted. And yet life is not an interruption. Life is not an intrusion on writing. But the best thing I can do as a person is be an integrated self. And that means not sort of dividing myself up into writer- and mother or writer and woman, but allowing it all just to sort of be a whole.
0: Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it changed a lot from the first draft or was difficult or something you liked?
1: This is just a little section of You Could Make This Place Beautiful. It's called the Poem. I have poems that have accrued over eight, nine, ten years. Sometimes it feels like each poem I write is a draft of the poem I'm trying to write, that singular, golden, impossibly definitive poem, the one poem I'm trying to live, or the one life I'm trying to write, the mine. I've been testing out so many metaphors in this book, trying to find the perfect imagistic shorthand for this heart punch of an experience. The boat, the water, the nesting dolls, the ghosts, the scars. But this story isn't reducible to one. There isn't a singular, golden, impossibly definitive metaphor that encapsulates everything. No, it's all of them. I'm handing you a stack of Polaroids to shuffle in your hands. So some of the work is yours. And tell
0: me why you chose that. So
1: I, you know, a big strand in this book, um, I forget what term you use, but I liked it for the italicized sections. It, to me, those are, I'm, the, that braid is, co- is sort of the metaphor section. And each of them begins how I picture it. And it's me trying to describe what this time of my life feels like using a metaphor because I'm a poet. So that's how I, how I make meaning. And so for me, this particular section of the book kind of helps the reader understand what I was going for with those. So if you get to this point in the book and that hasn't clicked or made sense to you yet. um, And I think this, This kind of writing happens throughout the book where I want to sort of speak directly to the reader and just say, listen, I hope we're on the same page here. But in case we aren't, this is what I've been trying to do. And you're participating in this story. Like uh, the way that I've structured this makes you do some of the work. Like you actually have to kind of show up and follow these strands, follow these breadcrumb trails um, I can't do all the work for you. you know, just like in a metaphor, I I can only kind of give you the comparison, but you have to kind of do the mental math to understand why one thing is like the other. Same thing with this. Um, so I don't know. It, it felt kind of representative to me, both as a poet, working a lot with metaphor and the voice of the book being um a little bit more intimate speaking directly to the reader.
0: Where do you write? Mostly
1: in this room. Um, This is my writing room that used to be my children's playroom. Uh, And then I I took it over. (laughs) I reclaimed it. Um, So this is where I do most of my writing. Although um, I am known in warmer weather to write on my back patio where I can hear the birds and the wind and and see the light coming through the leaves. And that seems to always be um, inspiring too.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: You know, writing doesn't really feel like something I need to get away from. Um, So I I wouldn't say there's anything that I do as an escape from the thing I love doing. Um, And there actually isn't a way to escape it. Because even if I have no pen, no paper, no computer, no nothing, an idea will happen. Like even when I'm sleeping. Ideas will happen Um, and that I'm just frankly grateful for. I hope I hope the poems never stop, never stop knocking, even at seemingly inopportune moments.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Um, Her name is Katie, um, the poet Catherine Pierce. My uh, first friend I made in graduate school in the fall of 2000 at the Ohio State University. and We became fast friends, and I still send her
0: my poems now. How have you dealt with rejection?
1: No, I try not to take it personally. That's that's how I try um, to deal with rejection because it still happens. I actually wrote about this fairly recently on my Substack and my newsletter, that it helps me to remember a couple of things. One, my work isn't for everyone right? Like if you do, if you make anything of any um, artistic flavor, it's not going to appeal to every single person. You cannot be everything to everyone. And sort of along the same lines, editors are people. They're just human beings. And so when I send poems out into the world, if they're rejected, and still I I miss more shots than I make. um, If they're rejected, it helps me to remember that they're not rejecting me as a person. They're not rejecting me even as a poet. They just didn't like those four poems that day. And it's not that the entire institution or magazine didn't like those four poems. It's that individual, probably one person who has their own pet peeves and stylistic taste. It just didn't hit them and seem urgent and necessary to them on that day. But those four poems might really land with another human being on a different day someplace else. And so not not taking it personally and and sort of like thinking the stakes are higher than they are helps.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I do not have one. I really thought about this and I thought, okay. I do have favorite vowel sounds. I love the bright vowels. So I love like I and A and E. I love an OO vowel, but there isn't one word that is my favorite. Um, there just isn't. Like I probably say the word love more often than I say any other word because I'm telling my children and everyone else constantly. I, I love this. I love that poem. I love you. I love that meal. I love this recipe. I love this song. I probably say love more than any other word. And that feels sort of like psychically right to me. But I don't love the sound of the word love. So it doesn't feel as good in the mouth as a word with a bright verb.
0: Thank you so much for your time and um, for having this conversation. I'm really grateful.
1: No, this has been lovely. And, and thank you for sort of thinking and feeling so deeply into the book. I really appreciate it.
0: If you like today's show with Maggie Smith, author of the memoir, You Can Make This Place Beautiful, check out my interview with Claire Dieterer, author of the memoir, Love in Trouble. We talked about how her book changed over time, reckoning with your teenage self and making some sort of peace that life will not give you what you want and female friendship. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Andrew Porter, Curtis Sittenfeld, and Mona Simpson. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Merv Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.